Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, May 11th. Today, our resident legal expert, Eric Gardner, joins us to break down the theories of who actually leaked the Supreme Court's draft opinion, apparently ending Roe versus Wade, and why it's probably not a law clerk playing 3D chess, despite the conventional wisdom in Washington which is, of course, usually wrong. And later on in the show, Bill Cohan is here with an update on Elon Musk, who said this week that yes, he would let Donald Trump back on Twitter. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome, everybody, to The Powers That Be. It is Wednesday. I am joined today by our legal savant, Eric Gardner, to talk about a popular parlor game in Washington, D.C. Ever since Politico broke the news that Samuel Alito had written a draft majority opinion undermining Roe. And Eric, what is that game that everyone's playing? Well, I was trying to figure out who it is that gave it to Politico. Where did this come from? I mean, it's not every day that uh, someone scoops the biggest Supreme Court decision in the last half century. So obviously people want to know that. Uh, That's true. And look, I mean, the impact of this opinion, if it comes through as written in June, will, you know, be felt across the country. And this is the definition of a DC inside gossip. But it is, it is hugely important. And, And Eric wrote, I think, my favorite piece on Puck this week, which was basically like a very good bullet point argument for all of the different theories in terms of who the leaker might be and why someone would or wouldn't want to leak this document. And I do want to say, I have friends who are attorneys, some work for the government, some work for state governments, some are in private practice, and they also have their theories. They're texting me. It's like, even on the left, you can have some wild conspiracy theories about the motivations here, why this is happening. But the first thing you wrote, Eric, here, this is your first bullet point, is that this might not have actually been a law clerk because this would be a career-ending move, a CEM for (laughs) a law clerk at the Supreme Court. Can you explain why? Yeah, I think what people have to realize is that, you know, becoming a law clerk for the Supreme Court is like becoming an astronaut. It's like really, really, really difficult. And these people are the ones who, you know, you might invite them out to the party. Nope, they got to stay in. They got to study. They went to Ivy League. They've been preparing their entire life for this. They've played by the rules. They've studied really, really hard. And so I find it a little out there to, to believe that at the apex of their career, that they're just going to give it all up. It's like climbing to the top of Mount Everest, but being within a hundred feet of the top and deciding, nope, don't want to do it. Uh, I'm going to go down from here. It's just uh, pretty wild. And they'd have to have a really, really good reason to take on so much risk 
for for such a career ending move. And and so that's one thing that that leads me to believe that it didn't come from a clerk. You live in, in the DC area. I lived there for a long time. We both know people who have a clerk for the Supreme Court. Uh, and and you know, a lot of those people go on to become elected officials, senators, et cetera. And as conservative or liberal as they might be, they're just not ideologues. These are careerists. They're very ambitious people. And I think you're absolutely right. And on the topic of being an ideologue, this brings me to your second point, which is the strategic upside to leaking the document isn't as obvious as a lot of pundits are out there saying. For example, conservatives think a liberal law clerk, perhaps, or a liberal judge leaked it so they could influence the ultimate outcome. And then liberals believe a conservative could have leaked it so they could have, you know, changed the ultimate vote or something mm. like that. Um, can you unpack that for us? Here, let, let me put it this way. Let's, the topic of abortion has become so political that, I, I don't know, maybe we have a hard time not seeing the leak as some sort of political move. In my experience, leaks often happen because, you know, people are just boastful about knowing something. It doesn't always have to be three-dimensional chess. And here we have all these theories about why someone leaked it. But there's not much evidence for it. And if you think about it, you know, every single theory that comes out, you know, is is something that could easily backfire. Someone leaked it because they wanted to sway a colleague or they wanted to put public pressure on on a colleague to stick in a certain position. And that might be true. It's certainly plausible, but it's not rock solid self-evident. It it almost requires so much psychological prowess on on the part of the leaker. I mean, when you put something out there, you absolutely are sure the outcome because it very could easily lead to the outcome that you don't desire. And so for, for me, you know, I put that back with number one. You know, there's a lot of risk to leaking this, especially if you're inside the Supreme Court. So to me, those are two points that, that again, lead me to believe that this is not coming from some sort of inside official channel. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's been on the receiving end of leaks, obviously not as big as this one, you're exactly right. Like sometimes it's just a source you've maybe cultivated who trusts you and wants to gossip. Sometimes it's someone who just knows something and can't keep it to himself. And like the three-dimensional chess idea really ascribes a lot of, in your words, psychological prowess on the part of that supposed law clerk. You have this line in this section that says, take the speculation by NPR's Nina Totenberg that a clerk for one of the conservative justices leaked the draft with the intention of ensuring a majority for overturning Roe. This theory posits that one... The leaker feared Chief Justice Roberts would pull a colleague toward his more moderate position, maybe changing the outcome. And two, that this person believed that leaking the draft would compel the conservative wing, not wanting to be perceived as bending to public pressure, to hold strong. I mean, it's just like, that just assumes a lot of long tail outcomes, including like how the leak would be presented. Yeah, it presumes that the leaker is never going to get out, that people aren't going to discover who the leaker was. you know, ascribe so much psychological prowess, and yet there's so many holes to to a theory like that. You know, I've been in a position where some scoop I've generated has caused speculation about the source. And in my experience, you know, so many of the guesses are wrong. You know, I've even yeah. had times when lawyers have run to judges and complained about the other side 
delivering me something, you know, for some tactical advantage. And they just don't know, hey, their own clients leaked it to me, or I've been paying attention to the case for months. I mean, like this, like people just have very little idea sometimes where at least come from. So I don't think you could just narrow cast it as some sort of political move here. Yeah, I'm putting this under the bucket of of ways DC is more like Veep than House of Cards. Like <laughs> right. the whole Occam's Razor thing, it really applied during the Trump years with me. Like when there were all these conspiracy theories and the Russia investigation, like everything that Trump did or touched went back to the fact that he was just a like dumb, malevolent, vain clown. And everything flowed from that. It wasn't that he like was some like sinister puppet master. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, the gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. I want to get to your third point on this, which is the business about authentication. Um, Daphne Linzer, the executive editor of Politico, put a sort of footnote on the story. Can you explain what she said and what you read into that? She talked about, you know, how much authentication went into verifying that the draft opinion was real, uh, which to me was very interesting. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I think on first blush, people might have just overlooked this. But to me, it was is it's kind of telling, you know, because I think there's an inverse relationship between the reliability of the source and the amount of work you need to do to vouch that it's the real goods. You know, if this came from like one of the justices, you wouldn't spend much time having to verify it because mm-hmm. you know, okay, you know, there's a legit source. You know, I you know I trust uh, that Alito, you know could give me the opinion. And if it came from, you know, one of his clerks, you know, you'd probably go, you'd look, you know, you'd make sure that this person was really clerking for a justice. And, you know, you might maybe show it to one or two people to, you know, does this look like a Supreme Court opinion? Yep. Okay, great. That, that, <laughs> yeah. That's it. That, that's, that's it. Um, you know, what I was hearing is that, that they spent days on uh, authenticating this sort of thing. And to me, that was like, huh, that's interesting. If they spent so much time going through this, you know, work of authentication, that might mean that, that you know, the source was a little suspect to begin with maybe coming through an email from, you know, a mysterious person or something. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure, but but obviously there was a reason why they did so much legwork. And to me, that also points kind of outward too. Which brings us to the fourth bullet here. By the way, whoever edited your piece did a really good job making these bullet points flow into one Thank another. you, Ben. Well, thank ben you, Ben. Yeah, Ben's yeah. a great editor. <laughs> <laughs> the reason this is my favorite is because this was my immediate take too, which is the co-byline on this story. So Josh Gerstein, who has been a Politico for a long time, a big legal brain, very smart, very rigorous, 
was the first name on the byline. And so that led a lot of people who don't necessarily know how newsrooms work to assume, oh, he must have gotten the story. There was another byline on the story, Alexander Ward, a national security reporter at Politico. Why was he on the double byline? And like, you know, this where my mind immediately went was when I was very junior at CNN, I got a scoop. I think it was about like the Romney campaign or something in 2008. Again, not anywhere close to the level of the scoop. And partly because I was young and new and not well-known, partly because my bosses, because of that, might not have trusted me as much. They put John King on the byline for CNN.com with me. And John did some extra reporting. And then John fronted the story for CNN. And it's like, that's how a newsroom would work is theoretically one person gets a scoop that might not be totally in his lane. Then you bring over the expert to help flesh it out and you work on it together. Anyway, what's your take on why Alexander Ward, a national security reporter who does not cover the court, was on this byline and what that might mean? Right. And this is not just any story. This was a huge, yes. huge story. I'm sure that every single reporter in Politico's newsroom would have loved to have been on this piece. I mean, to me, my read is that that he was the one who who kind of captured the story in the first place. He reeled in the fish, as I put it in the story. Whoever had the opinion, he, he figured out how to get it or he knew someone to get it. I've heard some theories that, you know, because he's a national security expert, he might have also helped in kind of like disguising the origins of it. And I, I suppose that's possible. But to me, the, you know, just by journalistic norms, it's much more probable that he was the one who kind of brought it in. And and to me, that suggests interesting possibilities, something that I, I can't figure out per se, but it, it does widen up the scope of who it might have been. You know, I, I also have attorney friends who text me with the same theory that he was put on the byline because of his national security knowledge to make sure the security was cinched up, to wipe metadata, as you said. But like, again, coming from a newsroom, you don't put a reporter on a byline because he does those things. You might put him like at the bottom. Alex Ward contributed to the story. More likely even is the company's like lawyers and standards people would go through with a fine tooth comb, do all that stuff. It wouldn't, they wouldn't like necessarily put a reporter on the byline just to shore it up like that. So that, that to me was the biggest, the biggest thing. I don't know. Anyway, I think this is a really good piece that cuts through a lot of the bullshit that's out there in, in theorizing who the leaker is, um, in part, because a lot of people have no fucking idea what they're talking about and you do. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Bill Cohan on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Uh, I thought uh, today I would just review some of the latest bidding on Elon Musk's quest to buy uh, Twitter. Probably the most notable thing happened today on Tuesday at the uh, FT uh, Automobile Conference where uh, Elon Musk was asked a few questions about Twitter and the deal for Twitter, most of which he did not answer, but he did say that he would bring Donald Trump back onto the platform. Uh, he didn't think it was uh, right to cut him out permanently, that if there had been some things that he had done that were offensive, it should have been done on a periodic basis, i.e. that he'd be taken off the platform for short periods of time and then reinstated. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to go over with the 220 million Twitter users. 
I'm sure uh, a certain percentage will be delighted and a certain larger percentage will be uh, offended. Obviously, that's not going to happen anytime soon because uh, this deal is uh, not going to close until uh, probably October. Uh, the other interesting things that happened in the last few days is that uh, Elon using projections and uh, a PowerPoint with investors that uh, absolutely seem out of uh, something he may have picked up uh, on Mars is that he's been able to attract uh, $7.1 billion of new equity from about 17 outside uh, third-party investors led by Larry Ellison and uh, other fairly well-known investment firms such as uh, Sequoia Capital, the big venture capital, an affiliate of uh, A16Z, the venture capital firm started by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. Fidelity is investing. It's a very eclectic group, though, a bunch of the people I've never even heard of. What I find additionally interesting is that there's no real bona fide private equity firm investing alongside Elon in the equity of this deal, or at least not yet. Uh, and, and based on the PowerPoint and the projections and the numbers that he's using to entice uh, new investors, I can uh, surmise why, because uh, it's clearly become a, basically a venture capital, a leveraged venture capital uh, opportunity. Uh, you know, he's talking about uh, generating something like, you know, $9 billion of free cash flow by 2028 sort of promise that to investors. And uh, if you're being generous uh, in 2021, Twitter did a billion dollars of EBITDA. So I don't know where these numbers are coming from. I don't know why anybody would invest. Based on these numbers, another firm, Hindenburg Research, uh, put out a research report uh, yesterday on May 9th, uh, talking about how potentially they are a have an acknowledged uh, short seller. They're shorting Twitter stock. They don't think the deal is going to happen. And they think, uh, in fact, that Elon is either going to walk away from the deal or he's going to recut the deal lower at a lower price than uh, 54.20 that he's agreed to. And that uh, Elon sort of endorsed the idea of that notion in a couple of tweets. I don't really see that uh, happening. It's certainly could happen. He does have that kind of leverage, but on the other hand, he's a total iconoclast. But basically, in, in deals that's really not done, especially when you're at the merger agreement stage and you're at the proxy filing stage, it certainly could happen. That would really singe his reputation, though, as a deal guy. Again, maybe he doesn't care about that. And I think given the choppiness in the financial markets in the last few weeks, that's the kind of thing that he may be thinking of or some short sellers might wish he would do. My bet is uh, he won't uh, fool around with that. He won't do that unless he discovers something uh, materially wrong with Twitter's financials. He's probably more likely to pay the billion-dollar uh, walkaway fee rather than uh, tarnish his uh, reputation that, uh, you know, such as it is, that he has after pulling this deal off when most people thought he wouldn't do it. So, you know, he's got to walk a bit of a fine line here. He has to 
protect what he's created in Tesla, which is now like a $850 billion company, uh, while at the same time raising the capital that he needs to pull off this Twitter deal. So it's uh, it's fascinating, and our uh, readers and listeners, you know, got to love this stuff. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.